0: Listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit stonegate.church in our series called Letters. We're just looking at the seven letters that Jesus wrote to early churches in the book of Revelation. And I love this series because it gives us an opportunity to see a lot of the issues that we think are altogether new or pressing or pertinent for the church today are actually ancient issues. Uh, That should actually remind us sometimes that actually the, the issues that sometimes we think are so loud... Um, are actually much more things that the church has come up against previously. In fact, the city of Thyatira is wrestling with an issue, and Jesus is going to speak into this issue uh, that is altogether significant for us even today. It's one that's just as relevant and timely that the church has to consider. Uh, Thyatira, for a little bit of context, was the least well-known of any of the seven cities that Jesus is writing to. It's also the least impressive city of the ancient world. It uh, didn't have an economic uh, powerhouse industry or anything like that. It wasn't a military destination. And yet this letter, if you glance at it in your Bible, which you can do, it's in Revelation 2, starting in verse 18, will it be this morning, you'll see that it's the longest of the seven letters. And much of this letter, some of it's good, but much of it is actually a correction that Jesus is going to offer. And Thyatira is also a city that is it's quite blue-collar. It has very hard-working people, people that are in the trades. Um, we'll talk about guilds even this morning, and guilds are the equivalent of like a trade union of sorts. And so the, the three movements of the letter that Jesus writes to Thyatira can be summarized as, as a, a praise that he gives, a praise that he offers. Then there's a peril that he warns against and then a promise that he leaves with. And so we'll start out with the praise because who doesn't love starting with good news, right, church? Verse 19, if you want to look at it, you can see Jesus says to the church at Thyatira, I know your works, your love and your faith and your service, patient endurance, your latter works exceed the first. (laughs) Thyatira is a church that has Love. In fact, in one sense, they're moving from strength to strength. Jesus is saying, actually, the works you did at first, you're now even doing better works than those. You're, you're exceeding in your good deeds and your good works. And it's even a, a little bit of a contrast between Ephesus, where Ephesus had works, but they did not have love. Thyatira has both. They have works and love. This is a, a vibrant church. This is a church that you might imagine. It's a tight-knit bunch. They love love. They serve, and they endure. Now, I'm speculating just a little bit, but I imagine it's the sort of church that if you walked in, you would feel like you immediately belonged. Maybe someone would say, great to meet you. Are you visiting? Can we help you get connected? Let me introduce you to a few friends. How can we pray for you? This would be a friendly church, a caring church, a relationally warm church And probably their service extended into the community. They were doing good deeds in the name of Jesus into their community. This was a church full of love. So that's the good part. But Jesus moves quickly to the bad part. And he moves us into the problem. See, the bad part was that their love seems to have been undiscerning and blindly affirming. Look at verse 20 with me. Here's the the big problem in Thyatira, and we'll just look at the first part of the verse. He says, but this I have against you, that you tolerate, that you tolerate. So it's a a weird thing, isn't it? It's like we we would want to be tolerant people, right? And we also live in a culture where this is still a, a big buzzword. I think for a lot of us that are Jesus followers, the last thing we want to be accused of is being intolerant. That we're not tolerating other people. And sometimes that can be an accusation that's levied against the church. And and let me just give you a little bit of a category for for Christian tolerance as we talk about that for a second. I think for Christians, we we do need to have a a good grid, so to speak, of what tolerance should look like. Because we can all affirm, every one of us in the room, that we embrace and support legal tolerance. That we can say yes and amen. It's a good thing that there's freedom of speech and freedom of worship. That we wouldn't want to pass a law and compel people to be Christians. In fact, when the church has done that historically, that's when the church has been at its worst. And it's also just strange, right? You can't pass a law that says you must love Jesus. It's like, that's that's not how it works. So we're all for legal tolerance. It's great that we get to live in a free society. And then we, 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 can af- we can affirm social tolerance, that as you and I go about our lives in our workplaces, in our communities, in our neighborhoods, we're going to come up against a diverse a uh, diverse number of worldviews. People that believe different than us, maybe folks that are, are Muslim, folks that are, are Buddhist, folks that are atheists, folks that are just agnostic, have different worldviews than we do. And that's okay for us to love them and befriend them and show kindness to them. In fact, what a great gift it is that the Lord reminds us that we should show um, kindness and compassion to those that are far from God as we seek to share the gospel with them. We can show even theological tolerance in the bookends of orthodoxy. There is all sorts of space where we don't need to necessarily condemn or divide uh, in a mean-spirited way with believers who see secondary issues different than us. Are you Minion? Are you Calvinistic? Are you, are you, are you Baptist? Are you Methodist? Do you speak in tongues? Do you not speak in tongues? What's your view on on uh, the, the gifts of prophets. I mean, all these, what's your view on the end times? Like there are all these secondary issues that we can show tolerance on. Um, and that's okay. So it's kind of like a a thing too. It's okay to like have different churches that have different distinctives, but we don't need to be intolerant of churches that have different distinctives of us. Think of those as state borders. Inside of America, there are all sorts of states and there's borders, but we're free to cross over those borders and appreciate the differences. Even when, you know, you go into Oklahoma, I know it's quite different, but you know, you can go over there. There's a state border. We still like them. We're not going to be intolerant toward them. Um... But you have on the other side, think about this, there is a national border. And a national border is like, should we tolerate heresy? What if someone preaches a different Jesus? There's a Mormon Jesus, that's not the real Jesus. There's a Muslim Jesus, that's not the real Jesus. There's a uh, a Jesus seminar Jesus. Scholars who think that they're able to understand Jesus better than Jesus in his own words. And that is not the real Jesus. Or those that tell you there are multiple ways to God, or God is whoever you want him to be, or God is whatever you think he's like. We don't tolerate that. that that's heretical, and it leads to danger, as we'll talk about in a moment. And also, we don't tolerate immorality. This is also a, a warning that we'll see in our passage today. And this is mainly for those in the church. If you're not a Christian, this doesn't necessarily apply to you, but Jesus is going to speak in our passage today. For those of you who would call yourself a Christian, he's saying your life should actually match what you profess. If what you proclaim and what you profess is not what you practice, it's repulsive to the world around you. And immorality is just this hypocritical statement that you and I are saying, we don't really practice what we profess. In fact, I would argue if you really want to push someone away from Jesus in the church, the best way you could do that is to just be a raging hypocrite. Um, In fact, parents, one of the, the best things you could do if your goal was to push your kids right on out of the church is to not practice anything that we preach here at Stonegate and to make everything more important in your life and every activity more important in your life than Jesus. And here's the, a side note while we're talking about it. Tolerance is such a low bar, isn't it? If you think about it, I, I think the gospel actually demands of those of us who are followers of Jesus something so much more significant than, uh, significant than just to tolerate people. I don't, I don't think the, the, the call of Christianity is to just tolerate people. Rather, the call of Christianity is that you would lay down your life for others. That you would show grace. Grace is actually costly. You know what it takes to forgive? It means sometimes that you're going to have to uh, absorb A sin, You're going to have to absorb a wrong. You're going to have to absorb someone hurting you and you're still going to offer forgiveness. Actually, Jesus says for us to pray for our enemies, to bless those who persecute us. Tolerance is actually such a low bar. And we also understand that what it means as Christians is we can't give unconditional affirmation to all behaviors. If that's what tolerance means, then we as Christians have to reject that. See, Jesus does not applaud the church of Thyatira for being completely open-minded. Tolerance can go so far that it becomes unfaithfulness. And often, church, this is one of the temptations or struggles that you and I might feel where we appropriate the cultural misunderstanding that love equals unconditional affirmation. Love doesn't equal unconditional affirmation. And you and I know that to be true. You know, if you are a parent, you've had this experience many times. I mean, if your kid comes to you and says, Hey, Mom and Dad, I'm going to go play out on 287. You're going to go like, Well, you know, just be free. I don't want to impose upon you. I just want to tolerate that, that, that belief. Or, Hey, Mommy and Dad, I'm about to take a bath. Okay, with a toaster. You're not tolerating that behavior. You're going to rebuke. You're going to be very intolerant of that behavior. And also, the, the, the cultural mores, what our culture tolerates, is constantly shifting. And sometimes that is a really good thing. And sometimes it's something that Christians can't affirm along the way. You know, by God's grace in the main, America is less tolerant of racism than we were 60 years ago. And that's a good thing. But there are also now certain ideologies and beliefs about sex and gender that we can't agree with, that we can't fully affirm. And this is hard. This takes wisdom. This is difficult, especially for a lot of us where we feel like that pressure as we're living in an increasingly intolerant culture. But here's what I'd say to you. The world around us, too, the culture around us is also quite intolerant. In fact, uh, if if you want to see incredible intolerance and hostility, let me introduce you to something called Twitter. (laughs) It's filled with intolerance. Or if you want to see something that feels like icy judgment, where every wrong you've ever committed is held against you and held up constantly to your face, a level of judgment that even the Pharisees would blush at, look no further than social media and the digital world, where all your mistakes remain Forever, So this is a difficult issue for us to navigate. And this is an issue that Thyatira was trying to figure out along the way. See, tolerance overplayed leads to absolute affirmation. And as we want to be Christians who are faithful to what God says, we can't affirm everything. I would just say this, the warm heartedness in Thyatira often overtook their clear mindedness. And that can be a tension for a lot of us. Sometimes in the name of compassion, we can be uh, people that affirm things that God would not affirm. And so this is Jesus speaking to the church at Thyatira. He says, this I have against you. You're overly tolerate. You tolerate things that I do not tolerate. And Christians, if we're submitted to Jesus, if we're surrendered to Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus, we have to not tolerate what he does not tolerate. So let's look at verse 20. This is the specific sin that he's going to rebuke. He says to them that you tolerated Jezebel. You tolerated Jezebel. Well, undoubtedly, this wasn't this woman's real name. She was some kind of false prophetess, though. Um, She was likely leading them. She had some type of informal or maybe formal role, but she was holding sway and influence among many people in the church. And she was deceptively leading them into two things that God does not tolerate. One was adultery and another was idolatry. And Jesus says those are things that we should not tolerate. We don't know exactly how she was teaching or what her role was, but we do know that she was deceiving people to walk away from the Lord. In fact, uh, her name likely wasn't Jezebel. This is Jesus referencing a woman from first and second kings. and if you want to read that story later on, it's an incredible story you should should read, but Jesus is, is wanting to reference and remind people of, of, of Jezebel from first and second kings. and if you don't remember who that was, Jezebel was a Baal worshiper. she worshiped a false god, and then she married King Ahab, who was the king and ruler of Israel, and her sole goal was to slowly lead away the people of Israel from trust. Yahweh. uh, To use economic pressure, she actually killed a lot of the prophets and would chase them down and wanted them harassed. She wanted people to participate in sexual debauchery at feasts to idols and Baal worship moments. And so her whole goal is to go like, okay, I get some of the Yahweh stuff, but can we just tone it down on these certain areas? Some of that feels a little archaic. Maybe it's a little too rigid. Maybe it's a little too stiff. Let's just kind of compromise here a little bit. I just want to slowly lead us in a different direction. And Jesus is basically saying, this woman who's at the church of Thyatira, she's channeling that kind of spirit, that kind of mentality. Just like Jezebel led the Israelites down a dangerous path. So this woman is another kind of Jezebel. And she was leading them to tolerate idolatry and immorality. Jesus is saying to the church at Thyatira, he's saying, you're allowing this woman to have sway over people. She's influencing people in a destructive way. Why do you tolerate her? Don't affirm her. Don't include her. Don't welcome her. Don't dialogue with her. And don't wait to see what happens. Jesus is saying, if you guys don't deal with it, I will. And apparently, by by some means, we don't know exactly how, but you can see it in verse 21. We see that Jesus had already told her to repent and she refused. And then in verse 22, he says this. Jesus goes and says, I'm going to throw you on a sickbed and she and her followers will suffer and I will throw them into a great tribulation unless they repent. Church, Jesus was not messing around. He takes sin seriously, he was taking her sin seriously. In fact, he was taking her sin so seriously, he said the consequence of it, and what he was prepared to do next, was to strike her children dead. That means her followers, those that were following her into sexual immorality and false teaching. Let's pause here for a second. Do you have a category for this kind of Jesus? Do you have a category for this kind of Jesus? A kind of Jesus that takes sin very seriously. A kind of Jesus that is holy and righteous. A kind of Jesus that judges accordingly. See, friends, absolutely, it is completely true that the gospel is free to all. It's an invitation. Jesus does say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. That is absolutely true, and we affirm that and say amen. But entrance into the kingdom of God, entrance into eternal life is marked by repentance. It's exactly what Jesus offered to Jezebel and she said no to. It's exactly what Jesus is offering to Jezebel's followers is an act of repentance. Will you turn from your idol worship and from your sexual immorality? That's what Jesus is holding out to most of the churches in the book of Revelation, a call back to repentance. And friends, might I suggest that that's what's missing from some churches in our culture. And churches can slowly move away from a gospel that preaches repentance in the name of being open and affirming. And you end up affirming things when really you should be making a call toward repentance. And here's the thing about repentance. Repentance is, is not necessarily, and I think there's sometimes a cultural misunderstanding, that it's all punitive, that God just wants to punish you and I, that, that repentance comes with 40 lashings and a furrowed brow and God puts you in time out and he takes away some of the good things in your life. Friends, that's not what repentance is. What Jesus is offering to the church of Thyatira, to those who are following into false teaching, what Jesus is offering you and me today in a gospel proclamation of repentance is that is where we drink most deeply of God's grace. That if you want to experience God's grace, if you need God's grace, if you walked into this room this morning and you actually feel needy, you feel broken, you feel tired, you feel like you don't have enough to get through the next week. Maybe you finally have come to the end of your rope. And that's where Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm offering you repentance. I'm offering you to drink deeply of my grace. But make no mistake, if you are going to faithfully read the New Testament, you're going to come across that when John preached the gospel, when Paul preached the gospel, when Jesus preached the gospel, there was a call toward repentance. Repentance. Because repentance is also us making allegiance that we're not living anymore for our kingdom, but we're living for his kingdom. It's us surrendering into submission that we'll follow Jesus wherever he would ask us to go. Friends, every single one of us will have a relationship with Jesus in the end. The only question is, will it be a relationship of ruination or restoration? And that's the call. And why is that? Because Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. And friends, if we are actually going to enjoy Jesus as we talk about around here at Stonegate, we have to be able to see the full Jesus. That's why I asked you, do you have a category for this Jesus? Uh, this, is, this is the doctrine. It's called Christology. That's a fun theological word, right? I just want you to feel like you're your money's worth this morning. So that's, it's called the doctrine of Christology that you see Jesus in his totality that you see Jesus in his fullness. We are seeing a different side of Jesus in the book of Revelation than you do in the gospel. In fact, look at verse 18. Here's how Jesus describes himself. He says, the one with eyes like flames of fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. I mean, that's like superhero imagery stuff, like flames of fire coming out of his eyes. I mean, that's intense stuff. And then feet that are burnished in bronze. I mean, these were bronze workers in Thyatira. They would have known the significance of that. Bronze was usually uh, the metal that they would make weapons out of. And so, this is a Jesus who's coming to make war. This is a Jesus who's coming as Lord. This is a Jesus who's ruling and reigning. This is a Jesus who says that world, all of this world, regardless of their ideology, regardless of their opinion or perspective or philosophy, that world is mine. I'm the king. I'm the Lord. Jesus gives us another one of these descriptors that we just have to be able to integrate into our Christology, into our understanding of who Jesus is. Verse twenty-three, he says, "I'm the searcher. I'm the searcher of minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your works." Friends, Jesus sees all, all that you've done, all the things you're still trying to hide all the things you're trying to hold on to. In fact, the the beautiful call of the gospel is that you and I were already outed at the cross. We were outed. Every bit of shame, every bit of our secrecy, every bit of our guilt was already exposed. And the invitation toward repentance is just, will you drop the fig leaves? Will you stop pretending? Will you stop trying to earn something that I'm trying to give you? Because Jesus does say, I will give each according to your works. So Jesus is also a judge. Do you see Jesus as judge? And he gives according to works. Now, now here's the thing. Here's the, the amazing part of the gospel. If you haven't heard this, we will be judged according to our works. It's just a matter of like, will you take Jesus's works as your own? Or will you try to stand on your own works? Because the good news of the gospel is actually Jesus takes your sin. So he takes all of your sexual immorality. He takes all of your idolatry. He takes all of your self-righteousness. And he says, I'll take that. I'll take all of it. And I'll give you all of my righteousness. I'll give you all of my works. So that when I judge accordingly, I'm not judging based on your behavior. I'm not judging based on your moral resume. But rather, I'm judging upon mine. This, friends, is called the great exchange. This is the great exchange and the good news of the gospel. So friends, we have to be able to just take away one of the blessings of these letters in the book of Revelation is that we get to see the diverse excellencies of Jesus. It's a phrase that Jonathan Edwards used in a sermon he wrote a couple hundred years ago. But that if we're going to really enjoy Jesus, we have to see the full Jesus we must appreciate and worship all of Jesus if we're going to become like Jesus. We have to see that Jesus is both tough and tender. And I think a lot of us are going to gravitate toward one or the other there. We're going to go, man, I really like the tough Jesus. I really like this eyes of fire Jesus, the judging Jesus, the ruling and reign Jesus, like Jesus go get him, Jesus protector, Jesus defender, which he is. And then some of us like, want to look over at the gospel sometimes and see those incredible pictures of Jesus' tender. Jesus saying, let the children come to me. All you who are weary, all you who need rest, the Jesus who is gentle and lowly. And friends, our Jesus is big enough that he encapsulates both. Our Jesus is tough and our Jesus is tender. Church, let's worship the full Jesus so that we can become like Jesus and so that we can enjoy Jesus. Okay, so you're probably sitting here this morning. You're like, okay, I got it, Ryan. Don't be a Jezebel. Don't sacrifice uh, food to idols and don't do false teaching. Okay, mental checklist complete. So I, I, I think I can do that, right? Okay, but here's the issue, and Rodney kind of talked about this last week, so I can't unpack it as much as I could, but even if that was their posture, even if it's like, well, I'm not going to be a Jezebel, no false teaching, and no idol worship, a lot of these things were brought to them, so even if they weren't looking for it, it was often looking for them. So part of what it looked like to live in Thyatira is you had to be part of one of these, these guilds, these trade guilds. And these trade guilds were much more than just unions. I know I said at the beginning they were equivalent of that, but they were much more than that. There's no safety net in this society. There's no social security or disability or life insurance or, or sick pay or anything like that. So actually what happened is you counted on the guild for all of your provision for all of your livelihood, for all of your life. And so when the guild got together, you needed to participate. You needed to be a good member of the guild and show up. And so when they're sacrificing food to idols, there's like, you know what, we're going to break off a little bread for Zeus. What do you do in that moment? Are you going to go along because you don't want to lose standing? Maybe you don't want to lose that next business deal. Maybe you don't want to lose that next bronze working gig. Whatever it was, they faced that same pressure. And then often at the end of these feasts, sexual revelry would break out. There would be sexual debauchery of all kinds as compromise had come into these cultural institutions. And so you have to face that pressure. Am I willing to be strange and stick out? What do you do if you're in that room? And friends, I know that that we're not exactly in that position, but a lot of us are feeling that pressure emotionally. Maybe we're feeling that pressure relationally in some of our workspaces. Maybe you're feeling like, you know, I can't make that compromise at work. I can't tolerate that behavior at work. That's a different ethic than the one Jesus, my Lord, is calling me to. Maybe as a student, you just feel a lot of peer pressure of like, well, what if I have different sexual beliefs and values and ethics than those in my class? What if I don't show up and I don't get the invite anymore to the Friday night party? What if I got to get left out? What if I get sneered at and jeered at? Well, let me say this if you get jeered at by the world, but you get cheered at by Jesus, then you've won. Then you've won. Count it gain. That's a win, church. That's a win for you and me. You know, a lot of what's going on in our world over the last 40, 50 years is uh, similar to that, that old uh, illustration of like the frog in the boiling pot. And I don't even know if that's true. It seems like the frog would jump out. Uh, <laughs> but there is some of that in the last 40, 50 years as the culture has changed around us. It can be hard sometimes to see all the compromises and things that we began to tolerate that we didn't used to tolerate. David Wells, um, he's a great theologian. I'd recommend reading all of his books. He said this uh, one time describing worldliness. He said, worldliness is a system of values in any given age that makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Sin looks normal and righteousness looks strange. See, friends, that's how it really goes down. No one writes like this magnum opus book, you know, that we all read and we go like, okay, I guess we're adopting all these new ethics and all these new behaviors. And now those things that used to look normal now look strange. It doesn't happen like that. What, what happens is like day to day, it's just everywhere. You're just getting exposed to a different set of values, a different set of beliefs. And over time, you feel like this low-grade pressure to conform and adopt and accept and affirm things that are not what Jesus would have. Sin begins to look normal, and worldliness and and righteousness begins to look strange. I'm not going to lie to you. I know the truth is that for a lot of us in this room, if we're going to raise our hand in the workplace, in the marketplace, in schools for Team Jesus, there will be a cost. But we're not the first generations of Christians to walk that out. And our Lord has been faithful for 2,000 years as Christians have sought to follow him. But might I suggest to you, this is exactly what makes false teachers so appealing. If there's one uh, really helpful diagnostic I could give you for identifying a false teacher, it's this. It's exactly what Jezebel's doing in Thyatira and the Nicolaitans were doing in Pergamum. False teachers make Christianity easier and more culturally acceptable. That's it. So they do. Christianity becomes a little less costly. It's a little less countercultural. You're not as salty. You're not a city on a hill. You just find a way to blend in. So here's the invitation. The invitation is like, you know what? If we'll just, you guys can keep a lot of the Jesus stuff. You can do all the, the Sunday morning stuff, but just make these other compromises. Tolerate these other things along the way. Jesus won't have any of that church. And he was willing to rebuke in very explicit terms Thyatira, and he will us at Stonegate, too, if we tolerate what he does not tolerate. See, this sin of Jezebel was a serious sin. It was also an entrenched sin. If you look down, too, Jesus actually gives it a label, what he calls her false teaching. He says the people have been told to embrace the so-called deep things of Satan. Satan. Now, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Deep things of Satan. I mean, at first blush, it's like, I should stay away from the deep things of Satan. You know, I don't want to go near the deep things of Satan. And this is likely not how Jezebel identified her teaching. Rather, it was Jesus branding it. It was Jesus putting a label on it, saying that's destructive. That even if that's what Jezebel believes or thinks about her teaching and the way she's influencing, I'm telling you all, it's demonic. It's evil. It's wrong. Now as best we can likely uh, understand what's going on here's the, the 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 teaching that Jezebel is putting forward some sort of false teaching that devalues the material world some sort of, of gnosis which is the Greek word for knowledge this Jezebel was saying something like the the physical world doesn't really matter it's the spiritual realm that counts So if you know the secret, if your mind can be set free and you're really enlightened to know the secret things, then you can go ahead and participate in idol feasts. You can do what you want sexually because you know your mind has been set free. That the physical world is a little bit more of of a temporary thing and a dirty thing and it will soon pass away and perish. And this physical world's an illusion, and it's dirty, and it's transitory. So don't worry so much what you do with your physical body. You can eat what you want. You can go through physical acts of worship to anyone you want. You can sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. It's not a big deal. But friends, I'll just say this. If you think particularly about sexual immorality and sexual sin, it's always a big deal to Jesus. There are a number of vice lists throughout the New Testament, and sexual immorality always makes that list. And sometimes it can be interesting for us as a culture. We're just like, man, sometimes when I read those parts of the Bible, it just feels like Jesus is being prudish or antiquated or a bit of a killjoy. What I'd say to you is that Jesus knows us. He knows what helps humans thrive and flourish better than we do because he made us. He designed us. And our culture is already in the midst of a 60-year experiment now that we just called the sexual revolution. And the sexual revolution is just this idea that casual and transactional sex and all expressions of sex, you will find freedom. The results, though, are that many of us instead have found shame and burden and regret and pain, addiction, and enslavement. So rather than freedom, we actually found bondage. Rather than intimacy, we actually found isolation. Rather than freedom, we found shame. And one thing, too, I think that Jesus knows and is true about sexual immorality in particular, and this is why he's saying so much, no, stay away from it, flee from it, cut off your hand, gouge out your eye, whatever you have to do, get rid of it, is because sexual immorality neuters our spiritual vitality. It also turns what's most precious and sacred into a commodity. It turns love from something that's supposed to be sacrificial and makes it consumeristic. And we know that Jesus hates things that harm his creation. So why is Jesus being so tough? Why is he so firm on sexual immorality? Not because he's mean, not because he's a killjoy, but actually because he loves us. He loves you. He cares about you. Jesus came to set things right. Just as you would hate someone if they violated or harmed someone you loved, of course Jesus feels that same way about his creation. He feels that way about us. He wants to see us, us flourish. But what's good news? And here's, here's where I want to be pastoral. Give me a moment, okay? Very few of us make it through this world without some moments of sexual immorality, uh, myself included. So I'm not standing up on a stage, although I am standing on a stage. But I'm standing here like just preaching to you. I'm preaching at myself. And I realize the shame that comes with that. I realize the pain that comes with that. I realize sometimes even the the lies from the accuser, that you're the only one, that you never need to tell anyone, that you should just stay in the shadows, that you should just stay in the margins, should stay in the darkness and never confess. And here Jesus is calling, he's saying, repent. Repent. That's where grace is. That's where freedom is. And I want you to repent. Because here's why, church. Jesus has already paid for the stain of your shame. So even if you come clean. So run to Jesus, come to Jesus. He doesn't want something from you. He doesn't want to punish you. He wants something for you. And what he wants for you is freedom. If you're in the room this morning and you feel stuck in sexual sin, I just want to tell you there's hope. There's freedom. There's grace. But the way to all of that is repentance, to trust Jesus, to walk in the light. And Jesus closes with reminding the church of Thyatira to hold fast. That it feels like there's all these pressures. It feels like the world's against you. It feels like the culture is calling you a bigot for not being more tolerant. But would you hold fast? Would you hold fast? And church, for a lot of us, what this means is that we need to double down on just reading our Bibles. And one of the best investments a lot of us could make is to buy a study Bible. I realize parts of the Bible, particularly this passage, we're not studying it this week, it can be confusing and daunting. Get a good study Bible. Dive into the deep end of theology. Do not fall for the false teaching that doctrine divides. It doesn't. Actually, truth creates unity because unity is found in knowing who Jesus is. And if we're going to worship Jesus, we have to know who Jesus is. You cannot worship Jesus if he's just an unknowable figment of your imagination and own concoction. So dive into the deep end of theology. The antidote to false teaching is good theology. We have books galore out in our bookstore. We have Jerry Bridges' book, Trusting God and Disciplines of Grace. That's a great place to start. There's all sorts of wonderful books out there. And don't listen to lies of like, well, I'm not a reader. Well, become one. Dive in. Sometimes, like, dive into something that's over your head. Do do a cannonball into the deep end of theology and drink deeply from God's grace and learn who Jesus is because you can't worship Jesus if you don't know who He is. Our passage closes with two promises. Two promises. Jesus promises us if we overcome, if we hold fast, if we endure, we will rule and reign with him over the nations. So friends, you need to see the promise that Jesus is making is that I am Lord. The outcome is already assured. It's not in doubt. It's not based on the next election. It's not based on the economy or inflation, but I'm Lord. You can trust me. And if you do, if you endure, if you overcome to the end, you will rule and reign with me. (coughs) And then he uses this phrase, you will receive the morning star. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Jesus says uh, this in Revelation 22, verse 16. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you the testimony for the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David and the bright morning star. The morning star is the first thing you see. Even while it's still dark, you know that the sunrise is coming. You see the morning star. It's saying, hold on, hold on a little bit longer. I know it still feels dark. I know it still feels tough. I know it's difficult. I know you're wanting to, to just give in, but don't hold fast. I'm the morning star. And when the sunrise comes of the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth, you will rule and reign forever with me. You will get Jesus and he is enough. Isn't he church? So even if you don't get the job you want in this life, you don't get the friends you want in this life, you don't get the spouse you want in this life, you don't get the opportunities you want in this life, you get Jesus forever. And that's good news. Let's pray. God, you you are tough and you are tender. And sometimes we hear tough words, hard words, and they are meant to humble us and create soft hearts. So Lord, would we receive some of these tough words this morning? Would they tenderize our hearts? Would we, would we drink deeply of your grace? Would we flee from sin? Would we put all of our trust and hope in you, Lord? <coughs> would we know even when life feels really difficult, we feel like we, we're about to give in, we're about to give up, we're about to compromise, Lord, would you hold us fast? Would knowing that we get to see you in your fullness, in your splendor, in your glory for all of eternity, would that make the things of this earth grow strangely dim as we await to see you face to face? Amen.